Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Majestic Glory. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 26, 2017. It's Transfiguration Sunday. This Sunday is the last week in the short season of Epiphany. The following week, we begin 40 days of Lent with Ash Wednesday on March the 1st. The Greek word for epiphany means disclosure, manifestation, unveiling, or appearance. So, how fitting that Matthew 17 for this week describes one of the greatest epiphanies ever, the transfiguration of Jesus, complete with blinding light, a heavenly voice, and visions of Moses and Elijah. And, just as with another startling disclosure, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah just one page earlier in Matthew 16, how strange that this manifestation concludes in all three synoptic gospels with a command of secrecy. Don't tell anyone what you have seen, Jesus told his disciples after the transfiguration. What's the purpose of an epiphany if you are told to keep it a secret? But keeping that secret did not last long. In fact, the transfiguration of Jesus became so central to the gospel tradition that all three synoptic writers include it. Listen to the text of the transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, <clears throat> who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. In 30 years after the Gospels were written, the author of 2 Peter for this week still appealed to the transfiguration for his readers to consider. What should we make of such a strange story? What are we reading here? A fable, a myth, or some theological metaphor? Perhaps eyewitness history? Or maybe some combination of these genres? Some will dismiss the story as a bizarre fiction, as if we enlightened people of today know better than those gullible people who lived 2,000 years ago. But we shouldn't be so smug 
or self-congratulatory. This sort of disbelief enjoys an ancient pedigree. Consider three examples. <clears throat> In his Life of Nero, Suetonius derided Christians as, quote, a set of men adhering to novel and mischievous superstition. And in his annals, Tacitus sneered at what he called the pernicious superstitions of believers. And for Pliny the Younger, governor of Pontius Bithynia in modern Turkey, from the year 111 to 113, Christians under his rule posed a practical problem. In two famous letters to the Emperor Trajan, he expressed frustration about how to prosecute the believers. He wrote, I judged it so much more than necessary to extract the real truth with the assistance of torture from two female slaves who were styled deaconesses, but I could discover nothing more than a depraved and excessive superstition. It's, too, it's true that people two millennia ago had a worldview that's different from ours, but that doesn't mean that they were inherently more credulous than we are today. Just try, for example, to imagine how people two millennia from now will judge our own worldview today. I find it hard to believe that the evangelists would propagate a story that they knew was false. Knowing that a ludicrous claim would harm their cause, and that making outrageous claims would earn them social ridicule, political marginalization, and even physical persecution. The disciples would have been wrong to deny an experience that they had, no matter how difficult it was to comprehend and explain. Decades after the Transfiguration, the Epistle of Second Peter appealed to their terrifying experience precisely to rebut criticisms that the early believers followed, quote, cleverly invented stories, end quote. No, he says, they were eyewitness accounts of actual events. Even if the story, like so many stories of the Gospels, was easier to describe than to explain. A different reading tries to have its critical cake and eat it too. It purges the story of offensive elements while retaining some kernel of truth. For example, interpreting the transfiguration as an embellished tale, as a truth communicated by myth or metaphor, or even as a misplaced and reinterpreted account of the resurrection. But this strategy comes at a cost. Its tendency, as history has shown, has been to make the ancient story look and sound conspicuously like the modern critic. And at any rate, what do you end up with but Jesus as a humanitarian moralizer, or perhaps a rebel rabbi? Even if the nature of the transfiguration is not obvious, the gospel writers seem to report a genuine experience. <clears throat> Sometimes even the recipient of such an experience is hard-pressed to explain exactly what happened. Whether Peter, James, and John had an ecstatic vision, 
or whether Jesus was literally, if briefly, metamorphosized before their very eyes. The natural physical phenomenon of brilliant light was secondary to the supernatural metaphysical affirmation of the voice from the cloud. This Jesus was not just a clever sage or failed apocalyptic troublemaker. Rather, the transfiguration portrays him as God's beloved and specially appointed son. Having thus experienced a fleeting glimpse of the full and final consummation of all things, the conclusion is inevitable. Listen to him. Three marvels accompanied the transfiguration. First, Jesus' clothes radiated blinding light. Matthew compares his radiance to the brilliance of the sun, Mark to super-bleached laundry, and Luke to what he calls a flash of lightning. These descriptions evoke comparisons to Moses on Mount Sinai when Yahweh appeared to him in a cloud and consuming fire, in the text from Exodus 24 for this week. Recall how Paul described his conversion on the road to Damascus as an encounter with blinding light, accompanied by a voice from heaven, which testimony lends an experiential aspect to his declaration that God dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6.16 Second, Moses and Elijah appeared in what Second Peter calls his majestic glory. Jesus fulfills the law that Moses received and consummates the end of all things that Elijah was thought to harbinger. He is more than Moses, greater than Elijah. Third, the voice of God the Father from a cloud, reminiscent of that at his baptism, affirmed what only a few pages earlier Peter had confessed, that Jesus is God's beloved and specially appointed Son, who merits our total allegiance. Listen to him. In his book, What Jesus Meant, the historian Gary Wills affirms the radically subversive life teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. He writes, He intended to reveal the Father to us and to show that he is the only begotten Son of that Father. What he signified is always more challenging than we expect, more outrageous, more egregious. And that's just what the Transfiguration does. For books this week, I review a Korean novel. The author is Han Kang. The title, The Vegetarian, a novel, translated from the Korean by Deborah Smith. New York Hogarth, the English translation is 2015, 188 pages. When we first meet the protagonist of this novel, Yang He, she's a plain and unremarkable woman. 
Her husband Chong married her, in fact, precisely because of her passive personality and run-of-the-mill character. But five years into their placid marriage, Young He began having horrible nightmares of violence and brutality and exhibiting strange behavior. Totally out of the blue, she announces that she has stopped eating meat because of the bizarre dreams. Set in modern Seoul, Korea, and told in three parts by three narrators, Yong-hee is more of a third-person object that others try to control than a first-person subject, although in one reading her vegetarianism is in fact the ultimate act of agency and independence. In part one, told by her husband Chong, Yong-hee's family blames her for obstinacy, defiance, and shaming the family. Her father physically abuses her, and they even try to force-feed Yong-hee, force-feed her. Yong-hee becomes suicidal, and he's eventually hospitalized. Part two is told by Yong-hee's unnamed brother-in-law, an artist, for whom she is an object of erotic obsession. And in part three, set in a psychiatric hospital, her sister In-hee struggles with her own guilt, shame, and anger towards Young-hee. There are a number of themes at work in this novel. Mental illness in general, and anorexia in particular. Independence from Korean culture's demand for conformity. Family violence the archetypal struggle between Thanatos and Eros, and the faltering efforts of everyone to emphasize with the tragic Yong-hee. This novel was originally published back in 2007 in Korea, in 2015 in Great Britain, and then just last year in 2016 in the United States when, in fact, it won the Man Booker Prize and was named by the New York Times as one of the five best fiction books of the year. Once again, from Korea, the title of the book is The Vegetarian. The author is Han Kong. For movies this week, a title called Shut Up and Dance from 2016. Shut Up and Dance is episode three in season three of the British television series called Black Mirror that debuted back in 2011 and that was later made available on Netflix, which is where I watched it. A teenager named Kenny experiences a sort of technological bribery that we might all do well to fear. After his laptop freezes, he begins to get ominous text messages that advise him that advise him that if he doesn't obey the ensuing commands, a badly incriminating video that took that they took of Kenny will be posted to all his contacts. And to prove their point, they show Kenny the said video that was taken by his very own laptop. 
Writing in The Atlantic in October 2016, Jeff Vandermeer writes of season three of Black Mirror that, quote, we discover that even in the midst of technological forces beyond our control, the individual is still free to strive to reject the oppressive, to stop being a hamster on a wheel, and most importantly, succeed or fail, the individual still has the choice to pursue an ethical path over giving in to darkness. In fact, this fictional episode of Black Mirror has had some comparable tragedies in real life among teenagers like Kenny. The series has drawn comparisons to the Twilight Zone with their ominous explorations of our techno-paranoia. To date, there have been 13 episodes of Black Mirror, each of which is about 45 to 90 minutes long. Once again, episode three, season three of Black Mirror, it's called Shut Up and Dance. And finally, for poetry, this last weekend in February, we posted a poem by James Russell Lowell, who lived from 1819 to 1891. You'll be familiar with some of its famous lines. It's called From the Present Crisis. Careless seems the great avenger. History's pages but record one death grapple in the darkness twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold. Wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. James Russell Lowell. It's from The Present Crisis. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 26, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.